And so as crazy as it sounds, if you're a janitor uh, earning not much at all, um, you're going to be living within your means. It's much easier for you to become financially free than it is for a doctor or a lawyer who's on $250,000, $300,000 a year and has, you know, the, the uber million dollar home and like they're probably still paying that off for 20 years, right? This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode of Property Investor versus Developer, we're once again going to the property trenches with Rob Flux from Property Developer Network. In defining the financial freedom and the steps to achieve that, he outlines the four fundamental high-level reasons to buy property. Plus, he shares his secret source to wealth creation. As most people mistakenly muddle the definitions of financial freedom and wealth creation, Flux delves in to set the record straight. Considering that he's been creating wealth since he purchased his first investment property at age 21, he covers the topic with credibility and authority, beginning with the definition of financial freedom. Well, I'm going to start by saying what it's not, okay? Uh, and it's not, uh, I guess, the, the 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 thing that's been sold to us, which is the big house and the shiny car and you know the the jet plane and all that sort of stuff, right? Uh, all of that is lifestyle. That that comes after you are financially free. Um, so financial freedom is having enough passive income to pay your debts. That's pretty much it. So what does it cost you to put food on the table? What's it cost you to put fuel in the car? What's it cost you to send the kids to school? What The lifestyle you're living today, what does that cost? Now, if you understand what that is, uh, then if you've got enough passive income to pay those debts, then you don't need to go work anymore. That's right. You're financially free. Time is now on your side and you can do anything that you want. Now, you might choose to do more of the thing that got you financially free, which then gives you the lifestyle, but you have to get through this financial freedom uh, side of things first. Um, but I think the the biggest challenge is that people are sold on the dream of the shiny house and the, the jet plane and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's so far out of reach that they, they, they feel like they can't grab it. Yeah, yeah. So they strive towards it but it's still too far away. So uh, now, as I said, you have to get through this financial freedom element to get to the lifestyle. So use this as a milestone along the way. You know, use this as a guidepost to say, hey, yeah, I'm actually making it um, and then get the shiny house. Yeah, I agree. I think to make it simple for, for listeners out there, um, say for example, I'm going to use numbers here which would probably make them a lot more sense for me anyway but like say for example, if your living expenses are between say fifty dollars and $60,000 a year and you're you know working right now earning $70,000 a year but after taxes and so forth, you probably take home maybe say $60,000, um, that's enough just to cover your costs but the thing is you're still working. Now, what you want to try and do is replace your working income by finding assets that generate passive income. And an example would be using property to receive rental income and whatever that rental income that is minus expenses can cover your, your current day-to-day expenses, whether it be $60,000 a year. 
then you are basically able to find a way to generate passive income and then aim for that financial freedom. Now, people have a misconception that you might need 200, 300,000. Depends on where you live. You know, if you're living very, very luxuriously right now, then yeah, obviously you'll need a lot more money. But if you're, you know, living with minimal means and, uh, you know, getting through day to day, you don't have to live a, a big, big lifestyle. 60, 70,000, you know, probably could be an average, I'm guessing here, but depending on, on the cost of living for life. Well, you've touched on a really good point, uh, and that is, look, uh, it's been a little while since I looked at this stat, so it might be just factually a little rubbery at the edges, but it's pretty damn close. The average Australian wage is approximately $80,000. Yeah, I was making guesses here, by the way, which is good. <laughs> and so because it's around that $80,000 mark, we tend to live within our means, so that that random number that you threw out there before of uh, you know it's costing you 50 60,000 to live is actually not that far off the mark and so when we look at what it takes to actually do that uh, it's not a huge amount of uh, huge amount of properties or a huge amount of money everyone's got this huge like you said they want 200,000 a year or 300,000 a year but why do you need that to get through the financial freedom stage you don't you need about that $80,000 mark by the time you take your taxes out to still keep uh, doing that. Now, the crazy part is that uh, as our wages start to go up, so do our lifestyle choices. Uh, and we do choose the better car and we do choose the bigger house. Uh, and then we have the bigger mortgage. And so to pay those bills generally takes more. And so as crazy as it sounds, if you're a janitor, uh, earning not much at all, um, you're going to be living within your means. It's much easier for you to become financially free than it is for a doctor or a lawyer who's on $250,000, $300,000 a year and has, you know, the, the uber million dollar home and like they're probably still paying that off for 20 years, right? Uh, so, you know, it's a lot harder for them to actually get financially free. Now, uh, many of you have heard of the, uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Kiyosaki. Yep, yep. Uh, he has a game called Cash Flow. And that's exactly what I was going to talk about just now <laughs> as well. I'm glad you mentioned it. We're both thinking the same thing. <laughs> Rob Kiyosaki is all about buy and hold. So, and I'm all about property development. So, there's no, you know, there's some subtleties between the difference. But he's basically teaching you that, look, that passive cash flow uh, and, the, and the, the moral of the game is the less you actually earn, uh, the easier it is to actually become financially free. Now, uh, I'm just going to put a pin drop in that uh, because right this very moment, uh, I'm in the process of creating a property development game uh, that is going to take some of the principles of cash flow and some of the principles of, uh, I guess, the property development side of things to say, how do you accelerate that process? Uh, so at the time of this podcast going live, uh, we are, I guess, coming up with some beta concepts on how that actually starts to, to look. Uh, but watch this space. It might take a little while before it actually gets into print. Yeah, well, I can't wait. I'll be probably, you know, Rob, invite me to be one of the first people to play the game because when I played the game Cashflow, I fell in love with it and I still have it. It's such an amazing game. And I was, that, that's exactly what I was going to raise up is when I played that game on, on Cashflow is that when I became a janitor, which was the easiest and lowest one where you actually you know, have to be able to get out the passive um, to get your passive income, I was probably the first one out of the rat race because of that once I became a doctor, my gosh, it took ages because the, the amount of expenses that you have to actually find to be able to cover took ages to be able to build that asset base up. The basic reason why that happens is because 
when you've got cash, you go for instant gratification. I want that nice car now. I want that nice house now, that instant gratification. We don't put that towards investing into our future. Uh, and uh, if they had have flipped it on its head, uh, there's no reason why somebody on a high income couldn't get financially free much, much faster, but they've gone for the sugar hit up front uh, and na- that means that they have to pay for it for a very long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, if you, if you know how to play the game well, and this is what happens in life, there is a way you can actually just reduce your expenses, still have a high income and you have this massive chunk of cash which you can use to accelerate and build up your asset base much faster. And I think that's also another strategy in the game. But I'll leave it out there for other people to play that game. I don't want to tell you too many little tricks and tips yet. <laughs> just somewhere back over there, I've got about uh, 15 copies of cash flow. Uh, we, we occasionally have kind of uh, little like cash flow parties for want of a better word. I should do that next time when you're down at Sydney then. Bring it down, please. <laughs> Note to self. Definitely, definitely. Well, it's it's really good now that we've defined what financial freedom looks like and that definition. I guess maybe we should probably talk about the reasons why people look at different asset bases. And as you know, there's like three different asset bases. We can look at buying businesses, investing to shares or buying property. And obviously, this being a property podcast, we're going to focus on that. So, maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the reasons why we would be looking at using or buying property to be able to help us achieve that financial freedom goal. Absolutely. So, uh, there's really fundamentally only four high-level reasons why you buy a property, okay? So, the very first one is lifestyle, okay? Uh, that is, we want that nice house. We want it. Uh, that lifestyle is going to be based on nothing from an investment purpose, but typically it's does it have the not right number of bedrooms? Is it close to the school that the kids are going to go to? Is it is it convenient to get to the shops or to work or those sorts of things? You know, uh, so your lifestyle choices uh, tend to influence the outcome of that design. Now, sometimes that it is your principal place of residence, and sometimes it's also a holiday home. Uh, but you know, we're we're making that our priority. The property making profit is incidental. It kind of happens as a byproduct of owning it rather than its primary purpose uh, in life. And so from an investment point of view, it's not probably not the smartest choice in most instances uh, because we've not put any deliberate focus into making profit out of that. Totally. It's, a, it's an emotional buy. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, you're going to have a larger kitchen, you're going to have a bigger garage because you want to put your nice cars in there and all that. You're not going to make necessarily money on this unless, you know, you've designed it in that certain way that's been designed. But as you said, at the end of the day, sometimes these properties, incidentally, make a lot of money because of the market, the cycles that go up. But you, you don't know if that's going to happen. It's really taking a bet. If it does, great. You know, that's the cream on top. But if it doesn't, it's really your focus is to enjoy what you've got there as well, which I, I totally understand. And that's the reason why a lot of us initially start to buy property because we buy it for our own home. But something along the lines changes. You know, you might decide I want a bigger home. So you might decide to keep this one and you turn to an investment property. And then that's when, like, hmm, which we'll talk about shortly, uh, whether or not it's actually still a good property as an investment. Yeah. Well, so I'll kind of, uh, once we've kind of covered the four categories, I'll kind of work, show you how to assess on a regular basis whether or not those things are actually performing as intended. But the second reason why you'd be buying a property would be for long-term capital gains. Okay, So this is the tried and true tested method that a lot of people are actually uh, purchasing their property under. Uh, And the idea being that, look, the market cycle tends to lift over time. There's there's rhetoric out there, whether you believe it or not, that your property will double every seven to 10 years. 
and because of that, people think if I buy it today and hold it long enough, it will eventually make money. Okay. Uh, now the challenge with that is that in order to do so, you have to cash flow that purpose that purchase along the way. It ties up a whole bunch of capital up front. You're going to put down a deposit on it, and you're at the mercy of the market as to how quickly the capital gains actually occur, uh, and also what happens with interest rates. And you know, like right now, interest rates going through the roof. So what could be a really, uh, I guess. Uh, good performing asset at, at one point in time, uh, things like uh, you know interest rates kind of impact your ability to actually keep acquiring those properties. And I think that's a good point that you raise because, as you know, prior to COVID, well, actually around COVID time, we had one of the lowest interest rates, and then since after that, many years later, rates have gone up skyrocket, as you mentioned, which actually makes it more expensive now than actually buying a property once back then. That was returning a good yield that was even more than what you're current for the interest so you kind of think to yourself is it really worthwhile you know buying an asset that is basically going to be taking more money out of your pocket rather than you you know getting receiving money from your pocket or from these assets i should say and obviously you can't really quite <laughs> generate cash flow unless it's it's positive cash flow because then it's really not really an asset then it becomes more of a liability yeah well like most people, uh, I guess, looking at these capital gains are doing it with a negative gearing type approach. So negative gearing is where the cash that that is generated from the rent from the property, uh, by the time you take expenses and uh, depreciation and a whole bunch of other things out, means that on paper, we're losing money. So we're, we're having to top up the loan or top up the, I guess, the, I guess the property in order to keep it, uh, I guess, alive for one of a bit better uh, and then that negative cash flow that means that it's actually costing us more to become financially free because we've now got our living expenses plus the expenses to actually hold that property uh, so it actually is going to take us more to become financially free when we're in that negative gearing type situation now what we're relying on is that the capital uh I guess the, the the value of the property, that capital gain will occur over time, and make us asset rich. Okay, uh, so the challenge the challenge with being asset rich though is you can't eat an asset, uh, and so I know many 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 people uh, who are millionaires on paper, but they still lead a pauper lifestyle because they haven't got the cash flow that actually gets which is generated from that, and the only way that they tend to do that is they tend to at some point in time, sell down an asset um, in order to cash in, uh, which then means paying a whole bunch of tax, uh, I guess, because you are impacted by that capital gain, uh, I guess, event, for want of a better word. Yeah. Well, in, in some sense, you know, sometimes paying down the debt will allow you to be able to pay down all the properties that you currently own if you're asset rich and um, cash flow poor. But hopefully, you know, that paying down that debt will actually increase the amount of cash flow that you have coming in from those assets if they are, you know, producing rental income. Because some people do buy land and they don't really do anything until for a long time. So, it's it's really interesting to be able to look from that point of view because ultimately, you've got to ask yourself, you know, coming down, what are your goals? What What's the whole reason behind why you're buying these properties? Yeah, correct. And I think that's a, a, a decision that a lot of people don't really consider too much is why am I buying this property? Okay. Uh, and and I'll, I'll kind of touch on that a little bit more detail after we've gone through these four reasons. But um, I guess the, the third reason would be cash flow. We're buying it specifically for cash flow. Okay. Now, 
the idea being that we're in an area where the rent is so high that it actually, I guess, outstrips the, I guess, what we're paying in interest in doing so. So then it washes its own face. It means it's not costing us to hold. Uh, it puts some cash in our pocket right from the get-go, uh, which is fantastic. You know, that is now something that is assisting us towards our financial freedom because now the property is not costing us money, but rather generating money. So the amount of cash that we need, uh, I guess, net in order to pay our bills now becomes less. So the more positive cash flow properties we got, the better. Okay. Uh, so that helps to pay our bills and helps us on a daily cash flow basis and all sorts of things like that. And leads us to financial freedom, hopefully. <laughs> Absolutely. The challenge with cash flow properties is that, uh, I guess, they tend to only happen in areas where people are not looking for capital gains uh, and they're not looking for capital gains because there's not much actual growth happening in the area. Uh, and so that makes the property cheaper to buy. So often they're in more, I guess, regional areas. Uh, they might be in mining towns, you know, areas where people aren't looking for the capital gain is typically where you're going to get the high cash flow type uh, outcomes, which means it's one or the other. Okay. It's typically not both that you're going to get. Now, sometimes you can, but typically it's not. So then you're buying it purely for the cash flow. And we've seen uh, in many instances where the, the demand on those properties is based on one industry vertical. So it might be tourism. It might be, uh, I guess, mining. It might be something like that. And then that one industry collapses and all of a sudden your cash flow stops and and because there was no demand on the product for any other reason, it can it can actually be quite problematic. And I've seen many people get hurt uh, by buying in the wrong area and then that industry vertical kind of disappears. You've got to be very careful once you look sort of further out, um, out of the CBD or the, the suburban areas of uh, major capital cities. Um, but yeah, you've got to ask yourself once again, what's your goal? <laughs> are you looking for cash flow or are you going for capital growth or capital gains? Now, you could equally go for cash flow where you've got uh, maybe a commercial property, for example. Uh, so commercial properties tend to be uh, more positive cash flow and that sort of thing. But uh, equally, you've got to do the assessment on the kind of property you've purchased. Would there be lots of demand for the kind of tenant that you've got? Now, there's 27 million people in Australia that need a roof over their head. Uh, but how many businesses are there? Uh, and then uh, based on how many businesses are there, how many of those happen to be, uh, I guess, medical versus office versus mechanics versus, you know, so that, you know, you kind of narrow that down and you go, well, of those, how many mechanics are uh, in my geographic area, you know, and then of those, how many are already got a property that they're already renting? Uh, and when you, when you chunk it down, chunk it down, chunk it down, uh, the commercial uh, can in some instances be, uh, I guess, a little risky if you don't have a huge amount of demand for the kind of products that you've got. Uh, so it needs to be very carefully considered uh, if you're wanting to go down that path. Yeah, I think the, the next one that we're, we're sort of looking at, the, the next fourth reason would be looking at uh, manufactured profits as well. Yeah, manufactured profits. That's what we do, property development. Okay. Uh, so we are using our skills, our sweat equity uh, to, to be able to manufacture a product that uh, is needed or in undersupply by by that particular area's de demographic. So what we do is we have a very uh, careful understanding of supply and demand. We have a look at uh, what is in undersupply in an area where there's a huge amount of demand, and if we can create the right product 
in the right place at the right time, then we are manufacturing the profit for people. Now, there's a whole bunch of uh, things that go into that, but we basically, we're trying to solve a problem for Joe Public. Uh, so Joe Public doesn't have the knowledge in how to do development applications. They don't know how to construct, uh, I guess, buildings. Uh, they don't know how to do civil works and just put sewer and stormwater and all those sorts of things. So if we solve the problem for them and we give them a finished product on a platter, um, they will generally pay us a premium for going through that hassle for them. So we are time savers, we're problem solvers, and more importantly, we're makers of community because we know what the community is looking for. Uh, we put the right product in the area at the time. Yeah, and that's that's the beauty of property development is that we're helping solve a, a problem in the area because as we've we're discovering, there is not enough supply of properties all across Australia, and hence the reason why we're starting to see more and more people coming back in to actually, you know, they're demanding for more pro- more properties, you know, to live in. Property developers have got uh, we've they've got a, a really bad rap. Well, I guess we we're, we're known we're known as these evil property developers. <laughs> Uh, um, and we're just going to rape and pillage the earth, okay? Um, but the reality is that last statement I made, we are the makers of community, okay? Let's have a look at Australia 220-odd years ago. We were a one-lot land subdivision, okay? So uh, every road that you drive on, every school you send your kids to, every house that you live in, every set of shops that you actually go to was built by a property developer who looked at the demand of the area and put the right product in the right location at the right time, okay? And if we can continue to do that, Australia will have a thriving economy and we're going to have the lifestyle that we want and that sort of thing. But it's uh, there are some of those evil developers who don't really care about the product. So, uh, But the, the, the better developers uh, are doing the right thing and actually saying, look, we're going to, to create this community and, and and make it vibrant and want people to actually live there and that sort of thing. So that's the goal. Yeah. And that's what I love, you know. So we've kind of summarized or pretty much given four main reasons why people should be buying property. Um, we're a bit biased being in, a, in the property space, but I think those are the key things that we look at as being building up the assets to be able to help us to be able to, you know, create wealth creation and, and financial freedom. But the thing is, is as we've sort of just touched on, there are going to be people out there who are. You know, asset rich um, have either that, or they want they want cash flow, or you know they're looking for chunk money. So let's let's talk a little bit about that because the thing is, is the challenge is how can we you know achieve or if possible, or do we have to go through a stage to be able to do either or? Well, it's chicken and egg, right? Which came first? Uh, do you build your assets first, sell down the property? and sell down a property or two and then pay off the debts and generate cash flow. You know, that's one of the things that you touched on before. Or do we alternatively, do we generate cash flow uh, so that we can buy more assets and allow the assets to grow? Uh, so th- that's the, the, I guess, the, the challenge that most people uh, take when they're looking at a traditional buy and hold type approach. And with both of those approaches, you tend to hit a glass ceiling because our borrowing capacity is what actually tends to slow us down. We need to have... Uh, I guess, deposits in order to, to purchase a property. And we get assessed on our ability to pay the loan over a 20 or 30 year period. And so based on the rent that we're generating and the, I guess, the the wage that we're actually earning, we have this glass ceiling as to how much money we can actually borrow typically. And we keep bumping our head on that glass ceiling, which stops us scaling to where we want to go. Okay. Um, now, the antidote to all of that 
uh, is the manufactured profits approach. So property development. Okay. So rather than looking at the serviceability of the of the loan and what can I actually afford, uh, we can start to look at alternative lending solutions that that look at what is the profit we're going to generate out of the deal. Does the deal make sense? And if the deal makes sense, because it's on a much shorter period of time, you know, some developments, uh, my record is about six weeks. Uh, uh, that's, a, you know, I've made $196,000 in six weeks is my record. Um, uh, but some projects will take two or three years to run, but that is a relatively short period of time compared to a 30-year buy and hold loan. Yes, yeah, right. The funders, whether they be private funders uh, or, 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 I guess, commercial development style funders, will look at the profitability of the deal and go, do you know what? I'll back you on that because we can tell that, that the, the product you're creating is the right kind of product and there's an exit strategy that's going to pay us back in a relatively short period of time. Uh, and so we can do things where cash flow is not considered anymore, but rather the quality of the deal uh, and also your skills in being able to, I guess, find, run and acquire that deal. So uh, so it's more about, I guess, the deal itself, which then means that we can break the shackles uh, and, and, and smash through that glass ceiling. And so long as the deal makes sense, we can just start to scale the size of our deals bigger and bigger and bigger as we go. That's right. And that, that's where the sort of chunk cash comes in because ultimately, say you go out and, and you're full-time you know, in a job and stuff like that, there is a certain amount of income that you can earn. And with, you know, the cost of living all across right now where we are in Australia, um, majority of our income is currently gone to living, you know. So, where is there enough money to be able to pay to start, you know, do a development or even just put back into property? And that's the biggest question mark. So, doing some type of property development allows you to generate some additional cash, like chunk cash that we're talking about that you could actually reinvest back into another development or you could go and build more assets that will generate cash flow and um, ultimately at the end of the day, allow you to be able to yeah, grow your, your wealth and then create that financial freedom that you're looking for. Yeah, and we've covered this next point uh, on one of your previous episodes. What do you do when you've got little or no money to start with? Okay, so we, we had an episode on no and low money down. Uh, so I won't kind of loiter on that one. We make people go back and watch your, your back catalog of stuff. Um, uh, but the other advantage of, of this is because of the fact that we can see there's a clear in and a clear out and we're not relying on the market because we're forcing value onto the property because of that, we can do these creative finance strategies when we have little or no money. And so uh, that glass ceiling is not just the serviceability, but it's also the equity to get the deposit to buy the property. Um, in in a, uh, I guess, a, a property development perspective, we can bypass that. Uh, we can sometimes completely avoid purchasing by just controlling the property. Uh, we can do some really creative things where we work with the landowner and never buy it in the first place. Uh, there's all sorts of things that we can do where we can uh, manufacture money out of thin air. That's really, really cool, isn't it? <laughs> well, we won't, we won't go down too much but yeah, check out our previous episode on that because we did go into a lot of detail about that. So, I guess the thing is, is if we want to do all this, it sounds great and all, Rob, but the thing ultimately at the end of the day is there's so many options to choose from. As you said, do you go and buy your assets or do you go and buy assets that already have cash flow or do you go and do on development? But why? Which one would you choose? And I think this is the thing is that we've got to ask ourselves, what is your goal? What's the purpose of doing all this at the end of the day? Yeah, that's probably, 
uh, one of the biggest factors in all of this is a lot of people know that they want to get into property. They know that they want to get financial freedom, but they don't really understand the mechanisms in how to get there. And they know that there's multiple ways to get there. And because they know there's multiple ways, they figure if they just buy anything, it'll work. Uh, And it's not quite right. Coming up after the break, he adeptly explains how clarity in your vision and strategy impacts the trajectory towards property success. So whatever your strategy is, uh, then just pick one. Get very good at one. Uh, And that one is going to then tell you, well, where does that one start to make sense? He explains the nuances that come with buying and selling property. But, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying sell. I'm not saying buy. I'm saying check in regularly. He unveils the magic formula behind his secret source in creating what he calls a free property. But if you do that, this is an asset that is now owned 100% positively geared. It's owned 100% outright. So it is now immune to interest rates. And that's next. I'm Tyron Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. From his extensive knowledge of using property development and investments to create wealth, Flux dives deeper into the matter of having a clear vision, establishing goals and focusing on one strategy at a time in your property journey. What you want to do is you want to be very clear on your strategy. Now, if you're buy and hold, that's great. But are you buy and hold for cash flow or are you buy and hold for capital gains, right? Because where you buy that property is going to be completely different. If you're looking for cash flow, you're going to be looking in one area. And if you're looking for capital gains, you're going to be looking in a completely different area, okay? You have different problems to solve, different price points to to, to be worried about. Uh, and, and there'll be different drivers that drive that particular market and economy, okay? Um, if you want to do uh, property development uh, and manufacture your profits equally the kind of development that you're going to do and the size of the development will equally change where you're actually starting to look so unless you get clear on your strategy and very clear on your purpose whether it be manufactured profits or I guess your typical buy and hold type approach getting clear on that and getting good on that is going to largely impact the, your your likelihood of success so firstly get clear on your strategy folks that is the probably the, I guess, the number one uh, recommendation that I would say. And then whatever strategy you choose, <coughs> property development, um, <laughs> whatever one you choose, then start to educate yourself on that and get very good at that, okay? If you don't concentrate on the one thing, we tend to look at more and more things. And when we look at more and more things, we don't look at them with a lot of depth to them. Right? But if we spin it on its head and we look at one thing, uh, the same amount of effort, we can get very, very deep in our knowledge. So whatever your strategy is, uh, then just pick one. Get very good at one. Uh, and that one is going to then tell you, well, where does that one start to make sense? Um, and then assuming that you made the right decision to purchase the property, you put all the homework in, you educated yourself and you purchased the property, the next most important thing is you want to keep regularly checking in to see if that property is performing as it was intended, right? Uh, because the, the number of times where we make some smart decisions up front and then we just park it 
and you go, that'll be fine. We'll come back in, in 15 or 20 years and cash in uh, and then find that the market has moved massively and the area that we thought was going to work has, is no longer going to work and, you know, it probably stopped working 10 years ago and we just missed the boat because we weren't looking at it. Uh, so my, my, my guidance is, look, no matter what your investment strategy is, Keep checking in on how your property is actually performing every every three months or so, typically. Uh, and if the demand, if you're choosing capital gain, you want to make sure that there is capital growth actually happening in the area. Um, if you uh, chose uh, a cash flow, you want to make sure that there's high demand for, I guess, renters and tenants in the area, and you know, low vacancy rates and all that sort of thing. And you want to start to see the market change before everyone else notices the market changes. If we can start to get in there, we can be proactive in our management uh, approach and start to make hard decisions on whether or not that asset is still performing as intended. Yes, yes. It's it's interesting that we say that because talking about um you know looking at I guess cash flow type of properties typically as we've known most of the cash flow type of properties are usually sitting out sort of the regional areas. Now I'm not saying that regional areas are good or bad. All I'm just saying is that there are still also potential in there. And the reason why I say that is because I've purchased you know a very good high cash flow property that was in the regional area that is still growing you know down towards in Victoria. And what's been really interesting is that as COVID has hit um, previously, a lot of people were changing and moving out of you know the, the main CBD area or main um, suburban area of capital cities into more regional because they can still work from those locations and still have a beautiful lifestyle as well for a lot less cost as well. So it, as, as Rob's talked about, you know, look and monitor the area, see the changes, and then see you know where there is growth as well, and um, you know enjoy that ride. Yeah. So if you're clear, I know what my strategy was. And I'm checking in on, on a regular basis to say, is it performing as intended for that strategy? Then we can start to make some some logical choices. So, do I keep uh, keep the property as is where it is because it's doing the right thing? And if you know that's a good easy uh, answer. So the answer, you know, if if you're uh, if it's performing well, then why wouldn't you keep it? That's right. Yep. But if it's performing badly then you want to start to make an assessment on, well, do I think it's going to keep performing badly? You know, based on what I'm seeing in the market right now, is it on a downward trajectory? Is it about to, is it about to hemorrhage? Um, maybe it is performing relatively well, but when you look at uh, other areas of, of the country, maybe, maybe it's underperforming compared to someone else. Maybe you could take the money out and put it somewhere else and still with the same strategy, but get it to perform better somewhere else. Right, so opportunity costs. Maybe your money's not working as hard as it could actually be, um, or in some instances, maybe it's actually losing money. And where that happens, we tend to to have the 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 old ostrich head in the sand type approach and go, well, the market will recover it. I don't actually lose money until the day I sell it. Uh, and uh, in many instances, uh, the property is not only going backwards from a cash flow perspective. But relative to the rest of the economy, uh, the capital growth side of things might be going backwards as well. So the buying power of that dollar that you're keeping. Uh, so you might get the face value back. Um, you know, if you paid $500,000 buy a property, uh, it might take you 10 or 15 years before it's worth $500,000 from a face value perspective. But $500,000 in today's money and $500,000 in 10 years' time's money might not buy the same thing anymore. Right? So... 
uh, a lot of us are more concerned about that face value side of things and I didn't really lose anything. So uh, so based on the outcome of those, um, I guess, that research that you're doing on a regular basis, you then start to make hard, informed decisions. Uh, do I keep it because it's doing great or perhaps do I sell it, take a loss, uh, but it's better to lose a finger than lose an entire arm, right? So, uh, so but, you know, I'm not saying... I'm not saying sell. I'm not saying buy. I'm saying check in regularly, right? Yeah. The last part to that equation, and I see this uh, like immensely in our community, a lot of people start down the buy and hold investment type approach and they bump up against those glass ceilings that we were talking about before and go, well, I can't go any further. Then they change their strategy typically to a manufactured profits, uh, property development type approach. Uh, and then after they get over the learning curve and they start to make more money through, I guess, forcing value onto the property, at that point, their money's working a lot harder on these new deals. And they look back at their old investments and they go, whilst it's still performing well for the, the purpose that I bought it, perhaps now that I'm smarter, could I repurpose that um, money a little bit better? So the opportunity cost of leaving it there look, it's going to make money. I don't have to take any effort, but over here, could I do lots more over here? Now, all of that's going to be based on, I guess, your skills, your risk profile, I guess, how well the property is actually performing at, at as is, where is, what the long-term growth uh, of that particular asset is and a whole bunch more. So it's, uh, but the key point that I'm trying to make to everyone is if you don't have a clear vision, if you don't measure whether or not that clear vision is, uh, I guess, performing as intended. Uh, if you change your vision along the way and you don't reassess your circumstances to, to go, you know, every, all the decisions are made before, are they still relevant now? If you're not doing those things, then your asset base is not working uh, as efficiently as it could for you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think it's it's really important once it comes down to once you've got past that level, like say you've achieved that financial freedom and now you've got a lot of time in your hands and your portfolio is performing well, you're moving into say uh, manufacturing profits through property development, you would have to reassess and maybe change your goals. Most likely you would change your goals because you've already reached that particular goal and then from there make that decision. And I think this is the thing is that, um, you know, there's no right or wrong answer here. There's no one fixed way. You know, once you start off as buying property and you start that buy and hold journey, you don't just continue on that way, you know, for the rest of your life unless you choose to. And this is where, as Rob has been emphasizing, is that you need to assess, continually go back and check in to see how things are going. You're going to have to change your budgets because, you know, lifestyle changes as well too. You know, family may change, situations change, all those kind of things and you've got to factor that all in. So, I guess, you know, Maybe parting words, you know, for, for people out there, what kind of approach would say, you know, maybe your Rob's secret source approach, as we call it, <laughs> what approach would you take for, from that point of view? Thank you, mate. Thank you. Uh, well, I'll put, I'll put this in context first. Um, I did 20 years of buy and hold before I became a full-time property developer. So I've got the traditional investment mindset and I've also got I guess, the, the new and improved property developers mindset. And I come up with a hybrid approach that combines those two worlds uh, to get the maximum outcome and to squeeze the lemon really hard. That's the secret sauce then. <laughs> so what I do is I use property development to manufacture the profit, okay? 
so that's the first, that's the foundation piece. And then I stack on top of that to say, well, if I can get a deal large enough that I can, uh, that the profit I get from this process means that once I pay down a few of those assets, it actually leaves an asset owned outright. So if I can do that, now that uh, I've basically manufactured a property out of thin air, okay? Uh, now, there's a magic formula that I'll talk to in a sec that says how do you, how do you create a, a free property? Uh, but if you do that, this is an asset that is now owned 100% positively geared. It's owned 100% outright. So it is now immune to interest rates, right? Uh, inflation going up is to your advantage because it both raises the value of the property and also raises the, gen the, the rent that's actually being generated from it. Uh, and so that's the ultimate goal is to actually manufacture an entire property owned outright. Now, in order to do that, the, the magic formula that sits behind that, and you say my secret sauce, but it's not that secret. I'm telling everyone, mate, <laughs> anyone who will anyone listen. Uh, and uh, it's really just a math equation, right? So uh, almost everyone that I ask, uh, I guess, in whether they are property developers or otherwise, they all have this uh, mythical number that they know every property developer is aiming for. So, so I'm going to ask you the question, mate. What is the typical profit on cost percentage that every developer is aiming for? Usually around the 20% mark. 20%. It's a universal answer. Everybody comes back with it. So let's use that 20% uh, benchmark and say, well, if I do a project that is six in size, okay, then if I sell five, it will pay the cost and the sixth one will be owned free and clear. All right? So... So then the, the big question is, well, how do I do six? Well, how do I learn the skills in how to do six? Well, today it's probably too risky for you because you haven't done property development. Uh, but maybe you could say, well, if I know I want to end on six, I'll, I'll just learn to do a smaller version of that. So I might do a four. Well, I still don't know how to do a four. So maybe I'll do a smaller version of that. I'll do a two. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a roadmap of saying, well, is that is that a project that is within my reach, within my grasp? Could I do uh, a one into two or a duplex or something like that? Okay. And then based on that, can I remember how I said, do one thing really well and get really, really deep in the knowledge. If we keep applying the lessons we learned out of that project and then step up a deal size, what I did in that duplex, I can now do to a triplex or a four pack, right? And use the exact same skills the lessons that I learned, I'm going to apply them. I'm going to get better and better at doing that, right? So I'm going to do a two-pack, a four-pack, a six-pack. And so within three deals, I'm I'm at the potential of actually owning a property outright, all right? Um, so repeat, rinse and repeat. Now, if you do that, okay, uh, there's a little bit of, uh, I guess, magic within the magic, okay? Okay. Uh, you only pay tax the day you sell the property. So that last one, the sixth one that you hold, right? You have not realized the profit yet. Now, because you've not realized the profit yet, you might sell it in 20 years time or 30 years time. You'll pay tax then. But until then, you've got 100% of the profit that you've got within the property. And that 100% of the profit is actually growing. 
If you sold it today, you'd have to pay GST, you'd have to pay company tax, you'd have to pay income tax. And so that 100% gets whittled down really quickly to about 55%. So instead, you keep it, you don't cash in day one, and now 100% is growing with the market. So now you've got your asset base, your capital growth is growing. Your rent is going to grow because that will also grow with the market over time. Uh, so you've manufactured the profit and then you've stacked the capital growth and the, the cash flow on top of that, right? So that is squeezing the lemon hard, my friend. Thank you to Rob Blocks, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory.